1: Just imagine if 20% of all farmers moved to regenerative agriculture, for instance, and restored their soils, and the soils were producing worms and fungi and insects and just live soils again. Just imagine what the change would be.
0: Hello, and welcome to How to Lead a Sustainable Business. I'm Alana Weston, chairman of Selfridges Group, and I believe that sustainability will be the next big disruptor of my industry. It must be placed at the heart of business strategy if we're to overcome the climate crisis and transition to a cleaner and more just economy. Through this podcast, we'll learn what it takes to make change happen. We'll hear from the transformers and the innovators, those who've taken existing companies and redesigned their business models, and those who started something new. This week, I'm joined by Charlie Burrell. The conservationist and founder of Nep Wildland, the first large-scale lowland rewilding project in England. He's the owner of Nep Castle, a 3,500-acre estate that's been in the Burl family for over 200 years. In 2002, he took a leap of faith, decided to step back and let nature take over. Today, the property is heaving with life, from free-roaming cattle, pigs, and deer to rare species of birds and insects. His wife, the writer Isabella Tree, has written a best-selling book based on their experiences called Wilding, the return of nature to a British farm. In addition to running the estate, Charlie sits on the boards of several conservation charities, including Arcadia and Rewilding Britain. Welcome to the podcast, Charlie.
1: My real pleasure to be here.
0: So let's go back to the beginning of your extraordinary journey. When you first inherited the NEPA state, which had been in your family for generations, you were only in your 20s. Did you see yourself as a farmer in the traditional sense? And what were your goals for the business at that time?
1: I had a hugely privileged beginning to my farming career. And I went and had a lovely time at Simon sister Agricultural College and learned uh, all the techniques that I have subsequently got rid of. Yes, I was definitely a farmer and I was coming back age 21 to run the estate and then took over the farm a couple of years later. Running the farm meant for me to enlarge it, get it bigger, cover the overheads with more products, more produce, revamp the how we were farming anyway and produce more from the same land and so on and so on. So all the things that I've been taught at college to do on this heavy, wet grade three, grade four agricultural land.
0: And so for 17 years, I think, you ran Napa as a dairy and arable farm. And as you said, the land wasn't great. And what were the other challenges that you faced? I mean, did you make any money?
1: We did occasionally. I mean, there was moments in time, and it it was those lovely moments when you had, in those days, it was called the green pound rate. It was the, the, the rate that you were paid your subsidy If that went well, you made money, and long as the weather was okay, and the the wheat prices and the grain prices were okay, and the milk prices were okay, then suddenly you made money. And and I think that happened once in 17 years. Uh, But mostly, it was small amounts of money being made, and mostly that money disappeared in capital improvements, whether we were having to improve our slurry system or whatever it was, the money all poured back out again quite happily.
0: So at what point did you realize that the business model you were running was unsustainable?
1: It was a conversation with someone who'd just taken over running their farm elsewhere in the country. He'd been in business elsewhere, actually in Hong Kong, and he'd come back and he'd started running this property. And he said to me, it's extraordinary agriculture, isn't it? Because you're selling commodities around the world. And so you're getting prices that are reflected from whether the harvest in the Ukraine was good or the harvest in North Dakota was okay. And yet you're sitting here, you know, on this very small island uh, trying to compete. And it's very odd, your, your business. So, you know, we rely on 20, 30% margins in industry. And you guys in agriculture rely on what, 1%, 2%? Plus 2% if you've got some subsidy coming in? And I thought, well, actually, yes, that is a point. You know, Why are we trying to compete with poor soils on a world stage? You know, how are we ever going to win that one? Uh, and if the subsidy goes, then we are really in trouble.
0: And so how were you inspired to do things differently?
1: It was this financial pressure. And at the time, I was thinking, well, what are we going to do? If we go down the road that the farm manager was wanting to do, which was to spend lots more capital on revamping the dairy business and getting better grain stores and so on and so on. Millions of pounds, I suppose, more investment in an industry that we were losing money on. I was just thinking, well, we can't do that. That risks our family. That risks our future. And so I started to look around for alternatives in the sort of late 90s and went around Europe and met some other people and started to think, well, there may be some other alternatives here. We could think about actually working with the land rather than against it. And and they took seed and I started to think, well, okay, let's think this one through. And we then drew up plans and talked to accountants and lawyers and worked out that we actually could do alternative land uses rather than just farming and do something different.
0: And so what you're doing has been called rewilding. Uh, But as a term, that's quite controversial. I mean, is that what you're doing at NEP? And can you describe the process and tell us a bit of the story of NEP's evolution from farm to wildland?
1: Rewilding is a journey. And if you've rewilded, you've got to the end of the journey. So you've got this idea that rewilded landscapes would be the wildernesses of the planet. But as our country is too small to ever get to a wilderness in the true sense of a wilderness, you're always going to be on a journey trying to get wilder and wilder to let nature work its magic. Quite a lot of people no longer can name the trees in their landscape, let alone the butterflies and the birds. You need a vision, and the vision may be grandiose and wacky and mad and unattainable, but a vision at least. And then once you start on that road to gain that vision... You then start to be buffeted by all the knowledge that you you are then picking up on the way, and that knowledge then steers that vision in perhaps a little bit different away. Uh, then that's the bit that really becomes really interesting, intellectually interesting, because you're then you're, you're reading and finding out and talking and visiting and, and seeing a whole load of things that you hadn't really ever considered before, and that's the bit that really will form your stronger and stronger vision for the future.
0: So share your knowledge with us. I mean, people often wonder why biodiversity is important to human beings and what role large herbivores play in combating climate change.
1: So there's obviously huge controversy in this particular bit and it's still working its way through. And I know that there's... All this evidence about you know eating meat and, and producing meat from farms and so on is now considered to be really quite bad for the planet in terms of the amounts of greenhouse gases that the whole system produces. And one of the, the bits of missing information, Natural England, which is in this country looking at this sort of stuff, they, they did a scoping report and looked at what data was missing for carbon sequestration. And the bit of data that was missing for carbon sequestration was this temperate zone scrubland wood pasture systems that we have a lot of in Europe. That's what we're working on now at NEP because we suspect that the NEP model actually is a very good carbon sink. And we know it's good for biodiversity because we suspect that we have one of the highest levels of Uh, breeding songbirds in the country now. So within 15 years, you've turned what was arable uh, dairy farm into one of the most important wildlife hotspots in southern England, certainly.
0: And tell me, I mean, I'm really interested in this concept of stakeholder management, and you mentioned songbirds. So if songbirds are one of the stakeholders at NEP, why are they important to the whole system?
1: I start from just the sheer joy of life. I don't have to think much further than that. We know that these complex ecosystems need to survive into the future because we need them, and we've been told that the whole time by the scientists. But when end of April, beginning of May, arrives again, and I'm going out there at dawn, and the air out of your lungs is almost sucked out, by the noise of, of life, it just feels so right. So it's a smell, a noise. It's a landscape that really breathes life back into into you. And I guess that sort of well-being bit is the bit that I would concentrate on most. But we know that we need to have these complex ecosystems to to even survive on this planet. In the last year, we've had 50 60 thousand people just coming to see the storks to see that you know this is unprecedented numbers that we we are experiencing
0: no oh, it's extraordinary and it just shows that sense of well-being that we get when we're outside and when we reconnect with nature because we are part of that ecosystem and i guess we forget that at our peril talk to me a little bit about the local ecosystem of stakeholders that you were involved with at the beginning? I mean, your, your neighbors, your ecologists that advised you, the people that worked for you on the farm. I mean, how did they all connect and how were you able to share your vision with them?
1: I sort of began to put a team together of people that were interested in the conceptual idea of, it's called process-led conservation, so this rewilding, And so finding all these people to come along on the journey was incredibly important because it gave me the strength of my convictions to follow that vision. You know, if everyone is saying you're mad, then, you know, you're probably unlikely to go ahead with stuff because you probably are mad. But in this case, you know, you kept on having, yes, let's go for it. Why not? Let's see what happens. You then got the courage to overcome the naysayers.
0: And can you tell us a bit about the naysayers and what it was about your approach that bothered them? And and did any of them eventually come around?
1: As long as I don't call myself a farmer anymore, then I think the farmers seem to be accepting me as a as a conservation project. We are producing a lot of meat still, so we're sort of crossing over that boundary, aren't we? But I think the main thing was it was the sort of morality, it seems morally wrong to do what you're doing. You know, you should be producing food. That's what farming and land is about, It's production of food. It's as strong as that, that feeling of giving up, being a member of a club sort of thing. It's that sort of you're moving away from your, your clan, your group, and you're doing something so radical that it feels threatening.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? The sort of philosophy or mindset shift that has to happen for us to truly change. And the idea that all land should be dedicated to food production is actually relatively recent. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about how that came about in the
1: UK? The war obviously created a, an environment where we just had to produce more and more, you know, U boats sinking grain vessels from, from the US, it really put us into a really difficult place, didn't it? And so we, as a family, ploughed up the Repton Park and grew crops in a listed park and removed three, 400-year-old oak trees that had been growing there. And so the big revolution happened of necessity. We needed to produce more food to feed a, a starving nation, and that carried on after the war. And then it was decided in Europe to actually subsidize food production. People at the time were questioning that. They thought it might take away innovation from the farmers and so on. And I think it probably did. We on this land in Sussex rely entirely on subsidy to actually make a profit. In terms of when we produce wheat, we're about 6.8 tons a hectare um, on average. And that's about two tons light or more than actually making a margin or profit without subsidy. But in the so-called green revolution, where we did all this work on changing how many grains per head, we now rely on sprays and fertilizers and so on for these new varieties and so on. So I think the feeling for me is that we've gone down a very industrialized system We've destroyed our soils and we know that I mean, all of that has got to change. And I think that's the exciting bit is that, that there's a lot of ideas of how to change that in the future.
0: I see you as a real innovator in your industry. I mean, 10 years ago, what you were doing was almost sacrilegious and now it's much more widely accepted. Do you believe that projects such as NEP are disrupting the agriculture industry? And does it have the potential to disrupt other forms of land use like forestry and even conservation itself?
1: I think it has. I think the story has has made a real impact. I think what I'm getting now, which I never used to get, was many more farmers coming to see NEP. And we have really interesting conversations. And so they take home a message of you know, more space for nature sort of message. They may not be rewilders, but they're, I think what I'm getting feedback from a lot of them about is that, okay, we understand now that we've got to think more carefully about what we're doing to our soils, but what we're doing about space for nature. And that's a huge change. I mean, just imagine if, if um, 10% or 20% of all farmers moved to regenerative agriculture, for instance, and restored their soils. And the soils were producing worms and and fungi and and insects and just live soils again. Just imagine what the change would be. And then tree planting, I think, is also being influenced. We certainly have spent a lot of time and effort in the last two years talking on Zoom meetings with government officials and and roundtable talks and so on about the need to consider how we're going to establish more trees in our landscapes. Trees in the right place can be really good, but trees in the wrong place and the wrong species can be really bad. We should have learned about that in the 60s and 70s when we planted up the flow country and so on with Sitka spruce and lodgepole. But we don't seem to be learning that. We've still got to fight that battle, I think.
0: So you've created a haven for countless species, many of whom were endangered or continue to be endangered. But at the same time, you've created a thriving business. How have purpose and profit come together for you in your journey to transform your business?
1: So we set out in in the vision document 20 years ago, how we were going to do it. What we were thinking about was what assets have we got on the farm and the land? And it was buildings and cottages and the land and people. And so how are we going to use those assets in a different way and not produce commodities? And so what we thought about, Doing was okay. The buildings themselves, because we're in the southeast of England, probably convert over time and rent them out to other businesses. So that's what we've done, and we've done about one hundred and thirty thousand square foot of that. And so that brings in about six hundred and twenty thousand pounds a year rent roll. And there's two hundred people now working in those buildings. You know, local employment has rocketed. And then the other thing that we um, thought we were going to do was do the tourism business and that has been astonishing so we now on a 10 acre field with some self-pitching tent areas and and some glamping units and some and safaris we're turning over eight hundred thousand a year and that is a sort of 20 25 percent margin business and that actually replaces all the farm profits that we used to make on a good year and it's much much more fun Um, The other thing we obviously are doing is we're producing meat, and we sell about £120,000 of meat a year wholesale. And we've just gone down the road of uh, setting up a website, and we're selling it directly to people now. And this year, it looks like we'll sell about a quarter of a million pounds worth of meat. And two, three years' time, we hope to be selling half a million pounds worth of meat from the same amount of stock coming off the land. And you've then got your cottages that used to be used by key farm workers, and they could be rented out now. So that brings another hundred and forty thousand a year. So all all of these these changes have meant that our gross margin is about twice as much as we would expect an organic mixed farming uh, enterprise to be bringing in. You know that's astonishing, isn't it? It makes more money. We have much happier lives. We. The soil and the and the land is working with nature rather than against it. And everything feels right. It just feels the right thing to have done, the right way to behave, actually.
0: I love that description. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted you on the show is because to take something that was so unsustainable as um, farming on poor land and actually take that as an opportunity to completely reinvent The use for that land, and take the purpose of conservation as your guiding light, but also the unseen benefits to your own family's well-being and the people who participate in the business. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: On the farm, you were always—I was always worrying about the telephone call from the bank manager saying your overdraft limit has been exceeded again. What are you going to do about it? And you're just going, well, I don't know. I'm not quite sure what we're going to do about it, but I'm sure we'll come up with something. And that made it quite stressful all the time. And so the other thing that changes, I guess, is management, like me, becomes much more chilled and relaxed. And that, I guess, will feed into all the people that work for us. And we don't lose people. They keep on working for us, and and they're here for long term. And I, th- I think that means that everyone you know, may be feeling a little bit happier and a bit more sound and everything's going to be OK sort of feeling.
0: Well, it, it gives one a lot of hope. And um, what is your vision for regenerative farming in the future? And how do you see subsidies supporting that?
1: We've been warned and warned and warned by government that the future subsidy regime is only part of what we're going to having to look for. And um, so we're going to have to think of different ways of actually raising money. And you will know about the uh, voluntary carbon market. There's lots of work going on uh, to create a biodiversity credit market. By the end of next summer, we hope to have had um, some sort of biodiversity credit scheme set up. So there's a whole lot of opportunities I'm seeing out there for the future. And it's not just going to be government. It's going to have to be entrepreneurial thinking and talking to people outside of your farming sphere. So you're going to have to go and talk to the councillor and you're going to have to go and talk to the local business who wants to offset their damaging practices on the planet.
0: So tell me, you've spearheaded transformative change at a family business over a relatively short period of time. What have you learned as a leader throughout this process?
1: I'm not a natural leader in those terms. 25 years ago, if you had said, Charlie, you're going to be getting up in front of audiences of two, three hundred people or going on to uh, big meetings on, on on the internet. And I would have said, you're completely mad. I, I, you know, I hate talking publicly. I, I don't want to do it. I'm not going to do it. And yet I've ended up being on stages pretty well constantly for the last 10 years. And I'm still bad at it. I'm not, I can't think on my feet particularly well. So being being a leader, I'm not quite sure if I'm gonna I'm gonna sit happily with that one, that even that idea. But I think the, the power of being able to show a site which is showing such extraordinary results is the leadership that I'm after.
0: Well, I think you're far too modest, and um, you'd have so much to bring to leadership in general because you've simply set out a vision. Gathered a group of people together that, that can help you deliver it. And now you're sharing it as widely as you can to hope that it brings a different future for farming and land to a much wider population. I mean, what, what advice would you give leaders in farming or beyond about taking on a challenge of this kind? I and mean, what characteristics do you think are necessary or going to become more essential.
1: One thing you really need to be able to do is to be able to stick out the flak. You have to ride the criticisms and you have to, if you believe what you're doing is right, I think in any sort of leadership you're having to go, well, okay, I can change a little bit, but actually not going to go that far because you're wanting me to do a U-turn and actually I think I'm right and you may be not quite so right as you think. That's what you need. You, you need to be able to just crack on and push through some of the some of the buffeting that you get in daily, weekly, monthly life.
0: <laughs> and it's the same for all of us when you're trying to bring about change, being able to take in everybody's point of view, but at the same time, continue at that North Star and then constantly refine the vision. It seems to be the trick. And, and people that I've spoken to, some are more conscious of how they do it than others. But I think what you've described is very simple, really, which is by actually showing people how it's working, that builds um, confidence and that builds excitement. And then more people come along with you. And I think that's incredibly valid. So now I'm going to put you on the spot again by moving on to our quickfire round. So what's your definition of sustainability?
1: I think it's got to be more than sustainable, hasn't it? That idea of regenerative agriculture is so interesting because it is continuously regenerating and improving. So actually sustainability is old hat. We just got to keep on improving and getting back beyond what we've you know, lost.
0: And is there such a thing as sustainable growth?
1: For the farming industry, I'm guessing it's one of the ones that could work. But in general, no, how? How do we keep on growing? How do we keep on taking from the planet? I don't know how to answer that one. We've got to change, haven't we? But actually, agriculture, you know, you can keep on building those soils, for instance, and those soils will keep on giving you something.
0: And what's most important? Customer demand, legislation, or innovation?
1: Well, the innovation has been the most powerful tool for us. So it's telling stories about things that people didn't think happened or worked or functioned in ecology. And that's woken up a whole new spectrum of thinking.
0: And so who will help us reach our climate goals fastest? The disruptors who bring us brand new products or the transformers who are changing the focus of existing businesses?
1: We're going to get that from our children anyway. And and I think Those are going to be the transformers. They are disruptors as well. But yes, I think transformers for me.
0: And what three things are you hoping will come out of COP26?
1: Dimbleby's new report, that's going to be really interesting and feeding into, you know, our little patch of the planet. Thinking about land use, I think that's going to be really quite interesting how how we take on board all that. I'm sort of already having these conversations with uh, people in DEFRA and people that are wanting to have sort of sideshows on COP26. I, I still don't get the feeling there's much cohesive thinking there, I'm afraid. I don't know quite what is going to come out of COP26.
0: What three things are essential to leading a sustainable business?
1: For me, it's been working with Izzy, my wife. I'm very much more slapdash and thinking through deeply about every single thing is something that I not very good at, and she is brilliant at, so uh, for me, it's talking it through with Izzy and saying, "What does it sound like to you?" and she'll then come up with about four hundred reasons why it's a crap idea <laughs> <laughs> and it and it'll be listing you know what damage it's going to do on the planet, mostly, so probably my skill and uh, my skill set is asking other people and then listening. <laughs>
0: Fantastic. Charlie Burrell, thank you so much for coming on to How to Lead a Sustainable Business. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do take a moment to subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show. This episode was brought to you by Selfridges Group and Intelligence Squared. It was edited by Debbie Kilbride with technical assistance from Mark Roberts. The executive producer was Farah Jasset. I'm Alana Weston, and this is How to Lead a Sustainable Business.